us. Let's open our Bibles. We're going to Ecclesiastes chapter 11 in the Old Testament. I'm cautious to say I won't preach long because that's, there's always the disclaimer that what the Lord may do. But I just something simple I feel the Lord wants to encourage us with this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 4. I want to welcome Sister Bronwyn Everett with us as well. Liz's mum, glad to have you passing through town. You can clap. Well, one person clap for you. That's pretty good. <laughs> it's not always easy to know when to clap and not to clap. Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 4 simply says, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege it is to hear your word, Lord, and we just pray that you would speak to us today by your word, that, Lord, we would, re- we would receive it, and that, Lord, it would stir in our spirits, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This verse in Ecclesiastes is telling us that if we wait for the perfect conditions to do anything or for everything to be just right, then nothing will ever be done. Farmers, we understand, depend very heavily upon the weather and the seasons for successful crops, but they're not in control of the weather. And so they do what they can to prepare soil. talked about that a little earlier. But they must hope and trust that the rain will come at the right time and the right amount and that they will have sun in the right amount at the right time when it most benefits the harvest. But the farmer who waits for the perfect weather, who basically wants to be in control of all his outcomes, his seed will never come out of the seed bag and the harvest will never be gathered into the barn. And so the title of my message this morning is risk management. Everybody went seriously. (laughs) We're not having a fire drill, although we do need to have one of those at some point. I'm reminded constantly, it's really hard to schedule a fire drill in the middle of a church service. It's the most, just kills everything, but we need to have one. So keep reminding me. The idea of managing risk is not new. Put simply, risk management means that we examine situations, practices, programs, and we see what we think could possibly go wrong, and then we try to put things in place to either remove or reduce the risk to an acceptable level. A very easy example of this is our roads. Every time you get in the car and drive, you have the potential to have an accident. Some of you, the way you drive, more than others. And so the authorities examine our roads and they take steps to reduce the risk of accidents by doing things such as considering appropriate speed limits, putting in things like speed bumps, various forms of traffic control like traffic lights and roundabouts and giveaway signs and all the rules that you have to learn when you go for your license. The idea is that it will be a safe place where we can all get where we need to go without too much risk. Amen. On a sharp corner or a hill, they may install barriers. And you may never even notice some of those barriers coming around a sharp bend, but if you lose control, 
you'll be glad they're there. And all of these things are designed to help traffic flow in a safe manner, and yet we understand that because of the human factor, everybody say, that's me, accidents still happen. You cannot, the only way you can eliminate the risk of road accidents is to stop everybody from driving. So we do what we can to control or to minimize risk. Uh, another practical example is the area of investment. If a company is considering investing in a project, or even an individual is considering investing in a project, you should take the time and, where necessary, spend the money to consider if the risk is worth taking. They put things in place to try to reduce or manage the risk. And that, those, those things have been in practice in one form or another for a long time, but we are living in a time where risk management is affecting every single part of our lives. Many of the things that people did a generation ago without even stopping to consider the risk, we either don't do now or we take incredible care to make sure that everything is safe and sterile. Give me an example. When I was at school, which is not that long ago, I used to ride my bike to school. Nobody wore a helmet when I rode to school. Nobody wore a helmet. Today, it's illegal not to wear a helmet because they've looked at that risk. Some of the things we used to do when we were children, when I was a kid, it was quite common to ride in the back of a ute or in the back of somebody's four-wheel drive. Somebody had a ute, all the kids piled in the back, and you went where you needed to go. Today, that's illegal. Although many of us survived it week in, week out, today it's illegal. I remember as a young boy having, who's old enough to know what a billy cart is? The young people have no idea. Billy cart was basically like a go-kart made out, normally made out of wood, long piece of wood, two wheels on one end, two on the other, a wooden box on one end and a rope to control the steering. What could possibly go wrong? And there was a park near our house that had a really steep driveway that went all the way down to the river. And I remember as a young boy having a friend, somehow we managed to fit in that little wooden box. It was obviously a lot smaller then. And we rode down that hill. You see, billy cars don't have brakes. And if you understand anything about science, the more weight that goes with the hill, the faster you go. And so we went tearing down the hill at... In my mind, it was probably 150 kilometers an hour, but was probably not even close to that. But I had to make a decision to either crash or go on the river. And I made the decision to steer, and that thing crashed, and we went flying out, and everybody laughed, and we had a great time. But if you did that nowadays without helmets, knee pads, and brakes, and safety gear, the risk would be considered too great. And I'm not saying that there isn't a place for risk management. Don't misunderstand me. But much of risk management is really about who is responsible. And uh, it's especially prevalent in our society today in areas that have to do with children because of the horrific treatment and even abuse that some children have suffered. The protection of children is one of the primary focus points of risk management nowadays. And in any organisation or institution, particularly things like churches, schools, charities, they are required to take great care in how children are supervised, how they're protected, and to try to reduce any risk as much as possible. That's why, as a local church, we ask you, don't let your kids go to the bathroom by themselves. Take your kids. Don't let your kids go to the bathroom with somebody else that's not family. 
Are we worried about the people in the church? No. Are we doing our best to prevent risk? Yes, we are. Why is that? Because we are responsible for what happens in the church. And, uh, you know, there are, there are many other examples of risk management, and I'm not going to bore you with all of those, but what I really want to get to this morning is the way that a society that is risk-obsessed affects the thinking of believers. Because everything that happens outside of the church affects the thinking and the behavior within the church. We are not immune from our society, and so we have to be conscious of the things that we should allow to affect us and things that we shouldn't. I'll give you an example, and this is very sobering. Yesterday I was walking my dog, as I often do, and going down the path in the park across from our house, and a little boy, maybe five years old, I didn't ask, on his bicycle comes along the path and starts chatting to me. Just a friendly little kid. And my mind instantly is, where are his parents? Don't do anything you shouldn't do. You know, keep walking. Don't stop. Be careful what you say. Because that's the kind of society that we're living in, particularly as a minister. I quickly found out where his family was, and they were in line of sight. And I didn't stop. I didn't change my pace. I just kept walking and chatted to him, and he said, that sign's as far as I'm allowed to go. And I said, you have a good day. And I went on my way. And it's, it's sad that that's how it has to be. But that's an example of how it affects your thinking. My first thought was not, what a nice little kid. My first thought was, okay, just be cool. You know, don't do anything you're not supposed to do. And that's sad, but that's the society that we are in and the way that our thinking. You see, I did not want to even give the impression that that young boy was at risk in any way. So how does that affect us? Hebrews chapter 11, starting to read at verse 1. Hebrews 11 and 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Verse 3 says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. You can read that verse a few, few or th- through a few times and it will blow your mind. Verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, everybody say without faith. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him somebody once said and i think there's some accuracy in it that faith is spelled r-i-s-k risk faith is spelled risk amen and we must be careful that the risk obsessed society in which we live does not influence the church in a fashion that we are no longer willing to put our confidence in a God that we cannot measure, that we cannot assess, that we cannot establish how great the risk may be. 
Faith, by definition, given in Hebrews 11 and 1, is when I believe that I have a hold of something, substance, that I'm actually still hoping for. It is the evidence or the proof of something that I cannot see. In the natural, that verse is counterintuitive. It's mutually exclusive. How, how can I say I have some substance of something that I'm still hoping for? How can I say that I have evidence when I can't see it? Can you imagine going into a court of law, standing before a judge, and the judge says, does the defense want to present any evidence? And we say, yes, Your Honor, we do. Where is it? Oh, it's invisible. Your evidence is invisible. Yeah, it's real, but you just can't see it right now. I'm getting up in a room with soft walls, with a jacket with the sleeves are on the back, because they're going to think I'm nuts. But faith is the evidence of things unseen. It is believing in something I can't see, something I can't explain, just as if it was right there in front of us. Verse 3 says that through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, it says we understand that the worlds were framed. It does not say we understand how the worlds were framed. Faith says, I believe it because God said so. But do not ask me to explain scientifically, mathematically, rationally how God can speak to nothing and make something. And how the things that we see and touch were made of things that are invisible. I challenge any of you, go home and make something out of something invisible. Bring it back next week. We'll have show and tell. This is what I made out of something invisible. You can't do it because you're not God. Science has been trying for centuries to explain how you can start with nothing and get something. And they discover different particles, and I'm not a scientist. They understand more and more about the universe, or at least parts they think they get. But they can never make that jump from nothing to something. doesn't matter how small you can get down. At some point, you've got to start with nothing. And only God starts with nothing and makes something. There's plenty of times in my life I've started with something and made nothing. That's the other way around. We can all do that. You can start the week with a wallet full of money and give it a few days. You can make nothing out of something pretty quick. Amen. Most of us, when we were younger, spent a lot of time making nothing out of something when we earned our money. Amen. But verse 6, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. In other words, if I'm not willing to take him at his word, then I cannot please him. Why does it matter that I please God? Because if I believe in him, I must believe in his word. 
I believe in his word, then I have to believe what it says about me, what it says about him, what it says about what he did for me. So I must have faith to please the Lord. We must have saving faith. That's where it begins. And Brother Frost talked about this a little bit at men's prayer on Friday night of how the Bible tells us that God has equipped every human being with the ability to believe in him. Now, you can take that faith and invest it and exercise it, but at a base level, every person is created with the ability to believe in God. Nobody's born an atheist. I do not believe that. That comes from false teaching and deception and delusion. Everybody is born. If we believe that the Bible says that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and that before I was formed in my mother's womb, he knew me, then I must believe that when I took my first breath, I had the capacity to believe in the one who gave me that breath. But that's where it begins, to believe that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and to believe that as the Bible says, when I'm born again of water and spirit, in other words, when I repent of my sins, when I'm baptized in Jesus' name, to have those sins washed away, and he fills me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, when I have faith in that, that he saved me from our sins, and that he's coming back for us. Can I tell you again, mathematically, scientifically, how when you're baptized in Jesus' name, your sins are washed away? No, I cannot. I cannot because it is supernatural. But I believe the word of God. The same word that spoke to nothing and made something said that salvation is only found in his name and that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Am I taking the risk? Yeah, I am. In the thinking of humanity, in man's logic, man's understanding, I'm taking a risk because it's really hard to measure the risk with God because he's immeasurable. But the reality is I got nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose by believing in God. If I'm wrong, I'll die and I'll return to the dust where I came from. If I'm right, then as the Apostle Paul said, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me that he shall give me at that day, but not to me only, but to everybody that loves his appearing. Faith is more than just trusting Jesus for salvation. That's where it begins. That's kind of the foundation of it all, because without salvation... You can have miracles and all that stuff, but you need to be saved. But it's more than just trusting Him for our salvation. It also includes trusting Him with our everyday, regardless of outcomes. And I say that again. Faith includes trusting Jesus with my everyday, regardless of how my world looks at the end of that day. Daniel chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me. God's children... The Israelites have been taken into captivity into the nation of Babylon because for too long and too many times they disobeyed God, worshipped idols, broke everything that God said for them not to do. And so he allowed them to be taken into captivity. You know how awesome God is? His people failed him repeatedly, not, not one bad day, generation after generation. And he allowed them to go into captivity. But, you know, we would think they deserved that. But God's whole purpose was restoration. 
He allowed captivity because he wanted to bring them back. We think punitively. In other words, we think punishment. And yes, the Bible talks about the Lord chastens us as the father chastens his son. But God's purpose of the captivity was that there would come a point where they would cry out to him again. Amen. So in the book of Daniel chapter 3, we read of a time when Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the empire, decided that it was a good idea to build a giant statue. And that when the band played the music, everybody, everybody in the kingdom was to bow down and worship that image. The problem was that amongst all of those Jews that were in captivity, there were some people that would not bow down. Now, the question is, where were the rest of the Israelites? That's another lesson for another time. But there are three young men by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down. And their refusal caused them to be hauled in before the king. We pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 3. When they were challenged about their behavior, verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. That was bold. We don't even have to think about this. We're not too worried about what happens. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then, somewhat understandably, was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. The form of his visage or his face was changed. Got a really dark look on his face against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than it was wont or it was usually heated. He cranked that thing. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army. That's an interesting statement just three young Hebrew men. Why didn't he need the special forces to tie him up? Maybe he was a little bit worried about what was going to happen. He commanded the most mighty men in his army to bind them and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And then these men, this is talking about the three young Hebrew men, were bound in their coats, their hose and their hats, all their clothes, their other garments, and were cast into the middle of the burning fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, these special forces guys weren't too smart, they got a bit close and the flame of the fire slew those men that threw, that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished, or astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did we not cast three men? bound into the midst of the fire and they answered unto the king true O king and he answered and said lo I see four men and they're loose they're walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of God then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego And then he added a little bit on the end. You servants of the Most High God. 
He's a little concerned here. He said, come forth and come hither. You see, nobody was going into the fire to bring him out. Then it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes, the governors, and the captains, and the king's counselors, being gathered together, saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor even the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you get tired of reading their names after a while, who have sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word, yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language, when you study history and you see how big Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was, this is a powerful statement. He said, anybody anywhere in my kingdom that speaks anything amiss, says anything bad about the God of these three young men, they'll be cut into pieces, their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. And then in a really smart political move, he promoted the three of them very quickly. We preach this story. We tell it in Sunday school because it's awesome. I've heard this story as far back as I can remember. I don't remember the first time I heard about these three young Hebrew men. But what we have to understand about faith is that their faith was in God, whatever the outcome. They did not say, if God will deliver us, we'll make a stand. God made them no promise. You don't read that when they came before Nebuchadnezzar, they they didn't say, The angel of the Lord appeared to us last night, told us everything's going to be okay. No, they just knew that according to the word of God, they were not to bow down and to worship any graven image or any idol. Had God not delivered them, their faith would still have stood. Their faith wouldn't have have changed. If they weren't delivered, it wasn't a statement of, well, their faith wasn't strong enough. They were just happy to trust God with the outcome, to take the risk of obeying God's word, to take the risk of saying, this is what everybody's doing. But my Bible says, I'm not going to worship that thing. And whatever it costs me, my faith is in the word of God. They had no guarantee except obedience. Sometimes the miraculous comes when we obey in opposition, when we stand for what is right, regardless of our environment. We said it in our Bible lesson early, but Romans ten seventeen. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The question is, what promises are you listening to this morning? What are you hearing? Is my faith in the word of God, or is it just one of many voices? that I'm taking counsel from. If I spend my week filling my mind and my heart and my soul with all of the philosophy and entertainment and media of the world, whose promises am I listening to? Because the promises that come through the world say it doesn't really matter. It's not right. It's not wrong. You can do whatever you like. It's your life. It's your choice. That's 
what the world says. But the Bible says, we read it from Galatians 5, we do the works of the flesh, we shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But you know what happens in a crisis? You find out what you believe and who you're listening to. That's what happens when the heat is on, if you'll pardon the pun with our text. But when the, when the blowtorch is applied, you find out what you really believe and whose promises you're hanging on to. Amen. These young men, it's quite possible that just near them, where they were standing, there was another Israelite on his face bound down to an idol. And I wonder how he felt when these young men came out of the fire. You see, faith, and I'm not too far off being done, faith is not only defined by believing that God can do the miraculous. Faith is defined by believing that God can do anything, but whether he does or not, I'll trust and obey him. I hope this morning that every one of us believes that Jesus is coming back. I was praying this morning, I said, Lord, I need that to be more front and center in my mind and how I live each day. I need that to be more prominent in how I think. I hope we believe that he's coming back. I hope we believe that it can happen at any time, even today. But I also hope that if he doesn't return today, you'll still be serving him tomorrow and be still looking for him tomorrow. That Because it didn't happen in the time frame that we desired, we don't give up, pack up and take our toys and go home. But that if he said he's coming back, then I'm going to believe it regardless of when and how he does it. You see, we need to take that mindset. We think, well, that's obvious, Pastor. Of course we believe he's coming back. We don't know when it is. We've got to hang on till then. But we have to take that mindset and apply it to the other areas of our life that need faith as well. Amen. If you need healing in your body and you come for prayer, in Jesus' name, he can heal you today, right here and now. But if he doesn't, faith says, I'll still serve him. I'll still get up tomorrow believing that he can heal me tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. Amen. If you're under pressure financially, Jesus has promised that he can take care of our needs. He might do a miracle for you today. But if it's not today, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to get up tomorrow and still believe that he's the answer. I'm still going to give my tithes and offerings when it doesn't make sense, when there's an element of risk involved, because he said that he would take care of me. If your spirit is dry and you're finding it hard to keep going, I believe that he can refresh and renew you right now, right here today. But if the rain doesn't come today, you get up tomorrow, and you go back and you look at the sky again. Elijah said to his servant, says that Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, cast himself down upon the earth, put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and came back and said, there ain't nothing there. It's blue sky from horizon to horizon. And the man of God said, go up again seven times. Seven's the number of completion. That doesn't mean that you pray seven times, you get your answer. It means that seven is God's time. And that's when God does what he does. 
And it came to pass on the seventh time. The servant came down and said, Behold, way off in the distance there arises out of the sea a little powder puff cloud the size of a man's hand. The servant has got sick of going up and down, I promise you, by now. And he's like, whoopee doo There's a little cottontail cloud way out and whoop whoop. And the prophet said, get up, go talk to Ahab, tell him to get in his chariot and get thee down that the rain doesn't stop you. And we know that the heavens open, the power of God fell on Elijah and he ran faster than the chariot. Amen. Sometimes you just got to keep getting up every morning and going out and looking up in the sky and saying, Lord, is today the day? I still believe. Let me tell you something. If you've got backslidden children, today could be the day they repent and pray through. I believe that. But if not, keep calling the names before the Lord in prayer. Keep claiming the promises that he's given you. Take the risk. Trust the promise. Hallelujah. Matthew 14, and I'm coming to a close, sisters, thank you if I could possibly have you on the piano, please. Matthew 14, 26 says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. They were kind of right, it was God manifesting the flesh. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord... If it's you, bid me to come to thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now I know the rest of the story says that when he looked at the waves and he looked at the storm, his faith took a bit of a dive and he began to sink and Jesus lifted him up. But he walked on water. I've never done that before pretty sure none of you have as well unless it was frozen you live somewhere where the lake freezes over then you can walk on water but Peter took a risk he took a risk and yes knowing when you read into Peter's personality when he got back in the ship he probably thought oh why did I doubt I'm such a you know but he was the only one of everybody that was on that boat that stepped out and somehow a sea held his weight up took a risk Hallelujah. I want to encourage you this morning. I'm trying to kindle a little bit of a fire. I've been hearing testimonies about healings recently, and we may hear some of those tonight, but God is moving, and he wants to do the miraculous. It might be this week that your family member, your neighbor, your work colleague agrees to come to church, agrees to do a Bible study, or or is willing to let you pray for them. And it might not be. But get up again tomorrow. Sow the seed again tomorrow. Don't be afraid of rejection. It's his word. It's his reputation. We don't have to worry that it's not going to hold up. If he said it, it holds up. We just have to have faith. You see, we, sometimes it's hard because we pray and something doesn't happen the way that we think it does and we become discouraged. But we need to take the same faith we have that he's coming back 
and invest it in the things we're praying for. We need to have goals, personal goals in our lives. We have goals as a church. You know, just recently we, the national leaders met in Sydney and we sit, we're looking at setting goals for 2025 and 2030 and there's growth goals that are set there and without getting into a lot of that in detail because some of that's still being finalized, numerically we're setting goals to double as a church. And you might think, double? Wow, that's, that's bold. Well, if your goals don't scare you, then they, they don't have a lot of faith involved. But here's the thing. Can we double? Yes, we can. You plus one. That's double. You plus one. That's all it is. Sister Sheila, how long did you go to church before that stubborn husband of yours got saved? 27 years of getting up every day going out and looking for a cloud in the sky and then one day out of nowhere in our understanding not in his when it was the seventh time in God's time clock Brother Miles got the Holy Ghost propped up in his own bed that's how awesome we, we go to people's houses and do delivery Holy Ghost I mean that's pretty awesome I'm not, God gives the Holy Ghost when I arrived at Sister Sheila's house that day and Brother Miles was propped up in, on the pillows in his bed because he wasn't well and Sister Sheila was praying with him, he just walked in and joined in and he got the Holy Ghost just like that. 27 years of saying, Lord, is it today? Is it this week? And me plus one. Every one of you here was somebody's plus one, if I can put it that way. You're going to hear, oh, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. You're going to hear a little bit of Sister Allison's testimony tonight, but as God was speaking to her, Sister Kirsty sent her a text message saying, hey, I'm going to this strange new church. You might want to come along. Plus one. One sows, another waters. God gives the increase. Stand with me if you would this morning. We have to be willing to risk in the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about stupidity or doing crazy stuff. I'm talking about taking God at his word. And so, well, you know, because we say, oh, but what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if he that regardeth the wind shall not sow? You're waiting for the perfect time. And we had a, we had a, a time of question and answers at the ministers and leaders retreat we were just at. One of the questions that came out was, you know, I know God wants me to do this, but how do I take care of my family and my kids and their education? And, and the elder that answered his question just said, God will never worry. He'll never fail you. If you take the step of faith, you let God worry about all that stuff. For some of us, it's talking to our neighbor. For some of us, it's been willing to offer to pray for somebody. For some of us, it's about asking that person again, hey, can I do a Bible study with you? Whatever it might be. Whatever your situation is, family, finance, health, Whatever it is, take the risk. Trust the book. Let's lift our hands and worship him this morning.